What is climate change exactly? Why did we stop calling it global warming? Why didn't we talk about climate change during the devastating Australian bushfires? What is coal power compared to clean coal? Are renewable resources really cheaper and more reliable? There were recently leaked documents that reveal a draft plan calling for massive gas subsidies. What does all this mean? Lucky for us, we have an economist that has dived into all of these questions and is willing to share his findings with us. Dan Newham works for the Centre of Future Work, which is housed within the Australia Institute and conducts and publishes progressive economic research on work, employment and labour markets. Welcome to the new series, Amy Asks About the Environment. Thanks for joining the series, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. So, Dan, let's just start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Um, yes. So, what is climate change exactly? Okay. So, I should state at the outset that um, perspective in this is as an economist. Um, I'm not an earth scientist. I know a lot of earth scientists. My partner's an earth scientist. But mm-hmm. in, in terms of, I guess, a uh, a high-level explanation of what climate change is and why it matters, it's, it's what we used to call global warming. Mm, mm. And it's the accumulation of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane or natural gas, mm-hmm. uh, in our atmosphere, such that the sun's heat is, is trapped uh, in our atmosphere to a greater extent than would be the case if humans weren't undertaking emitting processes such as industry and agriculture and transport. Mm, mm. Now, the reason we call it climate change now rather than global warming is because the Earth and its atmosphere and oceans are big, complex systems, so you don't get the same effect everywhere. Mm. Um, So in some places, there'll be desertification of previously fertile land, so Mm. it'll become more like desert, and then in other regions, previously arid land will become fertile as, you know, as rainfall reaches places that it didn't used to reach. Right. But that brings with it habitat loss for the flora and fauna native to those areas. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's kind of too wet um, for the, the, the species that are native or endemic to those areas. Right. And of course, we have these really frightening examples, I think, of feedback loops, such as the melting of uh, Siberian permafrost. So Mm. that's tundra. It's always supposed to be frozen. But as the temperature heats up above pre-industrial levels, that melts. And then that releases methane because there's a whole lot of, you know, rotten plant matter in there, essentially. Right. And since methane itself is a highly efficacious greenhouse gas, that then makes the temperature warmer in turn and, and sort of and, and onwards and onwards. Um, so, you know, put simply, it was an emergency decade ago. Yeah, right. And I, I do remember, or oh, I did look up, there was a study done in Sweden um, in the last century, I think, where they were talking about this global warming effect might be good in really cold countries. Uh, so there, there's been evidence of human-made uh, global impacts for a very, very long time. Yeah, so I think the example you might be talking about is Arrhenius, who first observed mm-hmm. um, what we now call the greenhouse effect, and that was under lab conditions. 
Right. And so I, I think, if I recall correctly, Arrhenius was able to say, mm, if you released enough of these gases into the atmosphere, mm. um, then it would alter the uh, alter the climate. And certainly not not long after that, I mean, early in the 20th century, um, there were like letters in American newspapers where scientists were saying, hey, this could be a thing, you know, it's not yet, but mm. down the line it could be. Mm. Um but then if you look at the temperature graphs, you really start to see temperatures uh, take off above pre-industrialised levels yes. uh, around the 1970s, and that's kind of become um, worse and worse and worse in, in pretty yeah. obvious progression. And, and the correlation yeah. between the two graphs of emissions and of temperature seem to be yeah. right on, on spot. And I do remember in 2016, um, Professor Brian Cox um, showing us those graphs on the ABC. So I, I remember that and I also remember before the flood, which uh, Leonardo DiCaprio um, did for the National Geographic, which was one that was very powerful for me when I was watching it. And uh, he is interviewing uh, Barack Obama, who sort of said, these things have a way of hitting yourself in the face, and and he was very keen on on staying on track with the uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. So the Paris Climate Agreement was put together um, as a global unit so that we could reduce emissions by a certain yeah. target. Uh, so I think it was two thousand and thirty that. Um, we'd have a, a 28% reduction um, of those emissions. Are we anywhere close to that? Um, look, we're not on track, unfortunately. Um, so our Prime Minister has described Australia's trajectory uh, as meeting the Paris target at a canter, but that's actually um, that, that's not an honest account of what's going on. Can I ask uh, what that means, at a canter? Like as in we're a, slowly trotting that way? Is that what you mean? Say, yes, exactly. Yes. We don't have to work very hard to get there, I think. Right, it's okay. It's, yeah, just, us. okay. Uh, but what, what, what he's um, including in that account is... Um, dodgy credits from an earlier treaty, the Kyoto uh, Emissions Target. You might mm, remember I do. Uh, that yeah, name. Yeah. Um, and, and we did meet and beat the, the Kyoto Target. Um, and so uh, essentially that's, that's left us with, um, according to the Prime Minister, some space to underachieve on Paris since we overachieved on Kyoto. And I there's see. very few countries that are claiming their success against the Kyoto Target. Um, uh, as as kind of an excuse to succeed less against the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Um, I mean, Russia are the Ukraine are they? Uh, they they sell a lot of oil. Um, mm. uh, yeah. So so we're not in great company. Um, and America's that, pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Say that again. And America's pulled out of the Paris Agreement, yeah, and there's no yeah. sanction to pulling out of that. And no sanction yeah. for not reaching your target. It's just a let's all try and fix this. Again, not great company to be in. Yeah. But okay. uh, from a legal perspective, Kyoto and Paris are separate treaties. Mm. So one analogy that I've heard used is uh, using Kyoto uh, to dodge your 
um, tariff undertakings is like telling your second wife that you don't need to do the washing up because you did lots of it in your first marriage. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in addition, I'll remember that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it gets a little bit worse as well, actually, because in addition, there's actually already an expectation in place that countries will sign up to more ambitious targets than the 26 to 28% uh, reduction that you mentioned. Um, so we're already supposed to go back and sign up to something more ambitious. Okay. And, and, and globally, um, so not just Australia's contributions, but as a whole, we're not on track to uh, limit warming to about 1.5 degrees above our pre-industrial baseline. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to, to my mind, the notion of using accounting tricks to avoid meeting these targets, um, but incidentally, the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott signed up to, mm. um, uh, it's just, it's perverse, you know, accounting tricks don't matter a jot to the global climate. The only thing the global climate cares about are physics and chemistry. Yes, yes. Yeah, you can't mathematically work your way out of it. It either is or it isn't. No, no. Yeah. No, no, it's it's purely political. It's got, um, yeah. Which is really... No bearing on you. That's really interesting because when COVID-19 hit and... Uh, whether we were quick to jump on to things or not, that can be debated later. But the Prime Minister stood next to um, Professor Murphy, stood next to the scientist and the doctor, and we take advice from the medical expert. So we did that for COVID-19, a global pandemic that could potentially wipe out or already has wiped out quite a significant um, number of people in our population and has certainly impacted things globally and economically. So Mm. why didn't we do that for our um, climate change? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Um, I I, I think uh, it points to a variety of, of psychological and also institutional factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you that the government responded really well to COVID. Australia responded particularly effectively to COVID and credit to um, both the, the federal government and, and the state and territory governments for doing so. Mm. And I think with, with COVID, the threat was especially clear and immediate. Mm. Um, and I think in a broad sense, the consequences of both a, a response and also a, the absence of a response or a non-response, uh, they were agreed upon. Everybody could see sort of what, what the choice was and, and there weren't any serious vested interests pulling us in the direction of a non-response. Mm. Um, I mean, there were a few kind of lone voices out there saying, you know, just be careful not to shut down too much of the economy. But everybody mm. agreed basically that it was a pretty good idea uh, to to do the uh, to do the isolation. Uh, do you team, think it was um, the immediacy of it that yeah, changed our reaction? Yeah. You do this or you yeah. die. Whereas you do this in thirty years, you could die. I think so, and I I think the well, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd add a couple of other things to that as well, which is that in in the case of COVID nineteen, countries were able to take effective action unilaterally. So sometimes you'll hear with um, 
climate change, countries saying, oh, well, you know, there's no point us doing it on our own. Um, I, I don't happen to agree with that argument. I think it's, it's always worth sort of leading by example. But nonetheless, in, in this case, you can keep your population safe, even if other countries aren't keeping their population safe. Mm. And so I think that's, that's, that's something that made it sort of institutionally easier to, uh, to overcome and to take effective action on. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I saw a photo of India the other day where the, the sky was clear. Um, where it was contrasted to where it was quite hazy. Uh, so has COVID-19 and people being in isolation and not being out emitting um, made a significant impact on our global emissions? Um, yeah, well, we need to be careful here because, I mean, there's, there's all that particulate matter that looks that makes the, the sky look hazy yes. and that's one thing. Yes. Um, but the the actual um, greenhouse gases mm. uh, that we put into the atmosphere they stay there a while. Yeah. Um, so um, so while there might have been this kind of brief period where there was a little bit of a dent, mm. um, if we go back to business as usual, it's uh, it, it's not going to make any fundamental difference. No, not to the overall uh, outcome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's given us a, a lot to think about. Um, we're going to have you back on the show, if that's okay. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the bushfires that Australia recently had and, and, and how the, that impacted our, uh, our planet as well. So thanks for joining us, Dan. I'll uh, see if there's any questions come through. Remember to pop over to my website and pop a question in if you have one. Um, otherwise, I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Dan, for joining us today. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. Yes.